Before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank all of our veterans this week as we celebrate Veterans Day. I'm grateful for the sacrifices and service you and your family have made. So happy Veterans Day. You've worked hard to build your business, and now it's time to grow. Welcome to the Multiply Your Success podcast. I'm your host, Tom Dufour, CEO of Big Sky Franchise Team and Serial Entrepreneur. And the purpose of our podcast is to give you a weekly dose of inspiration and education to help you multiply your success. And as we open today, I'm wondering if you have ever read those headlines about some company getting a big investment or a buyout and wondered, how do you attract an investment like that? I know I've thought about that. And if you've ever wondered what that secret sauce might be, then this episode is for you. Or maybe if you're trying to think about an exit in the future and to find those investors to come in, that this episode is for you. And today our guest is Maceo Jordan, a military veteran, serial entrepreneur, and an expert at building, scaling, and exiting high growth companies. And he shares with us some of the wisdom and experience that he's learned and going through this process. So let's go ahead and jump right into our interview. Yeah, Maceo Jordan, CEO, co-founder, chief cook and bottle washer, you know, because we're a startup. That's that's kind of how it goes. And so the current company uh, is Connexia Healthcare. We're setting out to remake healthcare by 2030. Um, and what we do for people is bring hospital quality healthcare into the home. And that business really was born out of really just tragedy. you know. So both of my parents, I took care of them at home until they passed away. My mom was just a year ago this past September, and they both uh, were victim to medical error. And the medical community doesn't really like to talk about medical error, understandably so. And so depending on where you go, you get wildly different numbers. Johns Hopkins pegs it to you know about a quarter of a million people are killed in the medical community. Of course, the medical community sponsored their own studies and they put it at like five. And so let's just say, okay, both numbers are wrong. It's somewhere in the middle, but think of that spread, you know, from five, obviously is facetious, but say, you know, 10 or 15,000 to a quarter of a million, there's a lot of room there. Um, and so with my mom, she was losing weight. COVID obviously was raging, uh, wasn't COVID related, her primary care doctor refused to give her care and said, you've got to go to the hospital. She wound up uh, in the hands of an oncologist who just didn't look at her chart. She was 96 pounds, 74 years old. And this doctor thought the best thing to do would be to puncture this woman's lung twice. Now, what they were looking for was potentially a tumor. The question that I asked the doctor at the time was, you know, do you think this is medically necessary considering she's 96 pounds? In other words, are you going to continue treatment? And his answer was telling. It was, well, if she's 96 pounds, then no, we wouldn't do it. And in that moment, I knew that this man hadn't looked at her actual chart. And so for people who don't know a chart simply means the record where all of your stats are, are put. So how tall you are, your age, your name, your weight, stuff like that. Um, and so he ordered the test anyway. And 10 days, 10 days from admission uh, to her dying, which is just an absolute tragedy. And when you multiply that same scenario, meaning you've got somebody that fits a, a certain profile, you have doctors which are looking at incomplete information, and then you have a medical staff who, for various reasons, will not step into the gap and say, hold on a minute, we need to you know, stop this. You're looking at a catastrophe because there's 61 million of those people in the United States. 
And if we thought that COVID was going to overwhelm hospitals, you know, just wait until you have 60 million people that are over 70. They've got multiple chronic diseases. You know, they're running into these miscommunications internally. Uh, I mean, it's it's going to be a train wreck. I mean, this is not like if, it's more how bad is it going to be? And I just don't want these kind of stories to get swept under the rug. I mean, you know, what my mom, if absent me out here telling this story, you know, I'm, my mom's story would just pass away, you know, into the, the annals of never spoken again kind of medical lore. And so we're here to make sure that that doesn't happen. But let's lift off of that, you know, that sort of start. Um, and I'll segue into, I think, you know, your, your particularly your, the listeners here will appreciate is, you know, people talk about passion in business, especially when you're talking about startups, that it's really important. And so obviously I've got a lot of passion. You know, I saw, you know, personal tragedy come out of that. But if, if entrepreneurs could harness those kinds of stories, um, you know, why did they get started, you know, in the business? And I'll call on uh, sort of an older movie now, Jerry Maguire. And there's a scene, you've got Jerry Maguire and, and uh, his counterpart, Cooby Gooding Jr. and uh, Tom Cruise. So Tom Cruise is there in the locker room and he's like, let's get back to the, you know, the game when you were a kid. You remember when you played this for fun? It, it hasn't always about, been about the money, right? You know, it was, it was that kind of thing. And so the, you know, Cuba's character had lost sight of that, the joy of the game. Yeah, you're out there getting hammered, just like in business. You know, you're going to run into problems. You know, you're out there making great plays. You know, sometimes you're going to, it seems like everything is arrayed against you. You know, so Cuba's character, he felt, you know, put upon by the management and the fans, like nobody's appreciating me. But it's really this, this amazing synergy that we can tap into as entrepreneurs, where the more we do get into the real reason why we're doing this stuff, the more our customers resonate with that, the more our financial partners resonate with that. So if anything, it's it's like under you know go watch that movie and and some of those scenes are are instructive. But if you can tap into these uh, hero's journey like movie style narratives, it's easier to hire people. It's easier to explain what you do. People don't have to try and you know fit you into some category that doesn't quite work. I mean, once I tell that story, you know, starting with remaking healthcare by twenty thirty. And then the reason why it's like, hey, got it. You know, we understand not only what the problem is, but how big it is. And so that's when you get people really rallying to your cause. No, that thank you for sharing all of that. And it's just interesting to think. So with your company you're starting and what you're doing. So how by 2030 with the plan, I'm sure if, you know, I'm interviewing you and I'm thinking, okay, well, how are you going right. to do that? What What's going to take place between now and then? Well, so- some of this is super secret, like, you know, top secret special background investigation. But generally, it, it the beauty of this is that this population, right? So my mom did not want to go into a facility. In fact, I uprooted my family. We, we moved into this, this beautiful property. We had a, a two-bedroom casita. We call it casitas here in Arizona, but it's, you know, a little apartment that was on the property, you know, so she could be here with us. But it was also separate because I knew dude, I'm not living with my mom. Like that's just not going to happen. So, you know, we were fortunate enough to have that kind of situation. And so that, when you say how, I, I go to the practical answer, right? And so this, this is instructive for entrepreneurs. 
Most people, when they're asked the how question, they go immediately to tactics. Oh, well, I'm going to, you know, we've got this great Facebook ever or whatever. It's like, look, dude, that that's going to pass away in like three months. You've got to focus on methodology, right? In other words, the methodology is the, the energy or the impetus for why something happens, whereas the tactics are the exact how are we going to do it. And so when you're talking about 61 million people don't want to go to the hospital, they don't trust their doctors, they don't feel listened to by their doctors, they darn sure don't want to go into assisted living, it's like that's a pretty great trend as a business owner because you've got demand there. And so really, the, the true secret to this is nobody wants to go into any of those places. They all want to stay at home. And so it, it's our job as Connexia Healthcare to simply provide them the easiest, you know, frictionless customer experience to make that happen. And so now let's get into the real how. And so that's going to be, you know, obviously making sure that we've got cash flow. So we're focusing on uh, one particular aspect of what's bothering this population, which is knee pain. We're standing up um, purpose-built uh, pain clinics across the country. That's phase one. And that's really going to provide the the base, both in terms of cash flow, but then also strategically in thinking through um, our customers, they're in pain. Like a big reason why my mom wound up in bed, uh, bedridden, she'd crapped up her knee as a young woman jogging and she needed to get it fixed, right? And so that in- inability to be mobile led to her being bedridden. And so that strategic kind of one, two of, okay, we've got the tactics, we've got the strategy, but more importantly, we've got the trend. So all of that combines to how we can get phase one. And so we're going to stand up about 600 of these clinics in the next couple of years, which is going to be a massive undertaking. And then once we've got that foundation, we're going to branch out into, you know, true home healthcare. You know, so that's going to be providing services in somebody's home really up until you get into some of the acute care. Like if somebody has a heart attack or a stroke, breaks a leg, you know, they're bleeding from their neck. Obviously we want to get them over to a hospital because they're, you know, they're probably going to need a surgeon pretty quickly. Uh, But for anything else, the amazing thing is even today, we can set up a relatively robust medical clinic inside somebody's house if we needed to. So for everything else, it's going to be, uh, I don't want to say light lifting is still a lot of work, but we are going to be able to actually have an assisted living quality facility in somebody's home. And then once we build the network of nurses and other medical staff around them, it really gets to be an issue of like, why do you need to leave your house? If you can have, if I can roll somebody to your home in eight minutes, which is about what you'd have an ambulance, it's like, you really don't need somebody right down the hall. I don't know if you've been in the hospital, but every time I've been in the hospital and I've pressed that button, it hasn't been like two seconds later, somebody comes into my room. It's like, okay, it's been 30 minutes. Let me press it again. It's been another 20 minutes. Let me press it again. You know, and I'm not, I'm definitely not throwing shade on on the medical staff. They're definitely overworked. They've got other stuff that they're doing, but I'm saying we don't, our measure isn't minutes. Our measure really is about 25 to 30 minutes. If you're in a facility already and it's like, okay, you know, I can do that standing on my head. That's really interesting. Well, I love I love where you're going with this and your expansion and growth that that you're gearing up for. Oh, thanks. Uh, one of the things that uh, at least I'm wondering, I'm sure someone tuning in will be too, is how do you get to this point? Certainly, you're motivated. I'm sure with this instance with your mom, but what's some of your background? What led you here to pull together these resources to make this happen? Well, and so I'll I'll answer the question in a little slightly different direction. Obviously, to build something this big, we have to get investors. 
And so if there's any secret to venture capital, private equity, or getting investors, it's experience. And you know, people like to, to, let me say it a different way. There's an understanding when it comes to getting investor capital. When you think about somebody giving you, let's say a million dollars, just to keep the math fairly easy, they want to make a profit on that, which means they need to get their million dollars back plus some. The more time you take, the more that dollar amount has to grow to provide their return. Now, most investors, they're not like most institutional or even angel investors are not like a typical, you know, Charles Schwab, Edward Jones kind of investor that's like, well, if I get eight to 10%, you know, I'm, I'm happy. These people want 25, 30, 33% on their money. And it's because historically that's what they've been able to get. So, Let's just do some math. 30% of a million dollars is a lot of money. So if if you're looking at that, obviously I'm not going to do this with a million dollars. I have to go raise a hundred million dollars. Well, 30% of a hundred million is an even bigger number that I've got to return to them on top of the hundred million. And I've got a time limit on all that. So when you when you really understand this problem from the investor standpoint, they don't want somebody that needs to learn a lot of things in order to get to production, right? in order to get to cash flow, in order to get to you know, money coming in the door, which is why investors typically take shortcuts. right? They want to hire the Stanford grad, the Harvard grad, because their assumption is, look, it's not easy to get into those schools. They know generally what like an MBA or a business program is going to produce from those schools. And so it's really a way for them to gauge whether or not you even have a shot at taking on this monumental task. So that's the first thing is you know for for entrepreneurs to think about. The and obviously you can't jump the hurdle of experience in like 2 days. But it can help you understand where you are really, you know, take a, a take stock of yourself, where your skills are, what you've done. And don't ask your mom because they love us and they're going to say, "Oh, you're awesome, you know, you can do whatever you want." If you want to go to a mentor or somebody or even an enemy, which is even better, um, and figure out like where are you really? And then start to ask questions related to the, some of the equations that I just gave you. So it's like if you are going, let's say you want a million dollars and you say, okay, if I am going to return that million dollars in three years plus a 30%, now this is an IRR. If you're not familiar with that, it's India Romeo Romeo. You Google that. So you you can run a calculator and you can you can start to understand how difficult this task is, because it, it, if you're talking about an IRR, the more time that goes by, actually the more you've got to return, because time is a component, right? So if I want to make thirty percent a year, every year, year in year out, that means thirty percent year one, thirty percent year two, but usually it's thirty percent of the initial amount, the million, plus the thirty percent, right? So your numbers are going up. Anyway, once you get into like what this really means, hopefully it will dawn on you that this is a big deal and it will give you an appreciation for just why, like when you watch Shark Tank, entrepreneurs are like, dude, that's a fantastic idea. Why I would invest in that in a heartbeat. You'll start to understand why these investors are like, no, nah, I'm out. And a lot of it is related to the person that's standing in front of them. At the end of the day, the investor's like, you know what? I just, I, it's like, it, they'll run into a couple of things. Like, I don't think if times get hard, this person's going to figure it out. Like they're going to panic. They're going to kind of turtle up. They're not going to, you know, 
they're not going to go out and figure it out. Maybe they're not, you know, they think, oh, that person's not assertive enough. Because let's face it, if you're in business, you've got to assert yourself. No one's just going to hand you business. And then the last one is really, um, you know, do they like you? If you've got an investor, you know, this is this is really akin to a, an intimate relationship. You need to have a, a high degree of trust. Um, you're going to be seeing them quite often. You're oftentimes going to be calling them with bad news. And so you, if if they don't like you, if you don't like them, deal is off. I mean, it just hands down. It doesn't matter how great the opportunity is. Um, so all of that goes into like just those are like table stakes. So you, we've got to solve for all of those things. We've got to layer on top of that a trend, right? Timing is very important. And then it's the team. Who are you putting on your team? And this is an area that that I've seen entrepreneurs really have a problem with um, because we tend to hire people that we like, not people that are competent necessarily. And so you have got to really hold a high bar for the people that, that come on your team. But the way you do that is by communicating with them. Communicate, I mean, communicate like what I, what I just did, just how hard the task is, what goals you're really trying to meet. And you'll find really quickly whether somebody is even able to do that. Because most people that are not very competent, you know, they're going to be like, well, you know, this is, doesn't seem right. This isn't a great fit. The A players, so to speak, they're going to jump at the opportunity. They're going to latch on to, you know, this is something big that we're trying to solve. And they're going to understand that like there are meaningful stakes uh, to them at doing their job. And that's something that I've found all high performers really gravitate to because it gives them a chance to not only showcase their talents, but also grow as individuals. That's a lot, but that's why it's so tough. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and thank you for sharing that. And it it's actually, you know, raising capital, finding investors and partners to the capacity that you're describing, and those reasons uh, are candidly, it's one of the drivers why why clients look to end up franchising their business. That's right. Uh, in conjunction with maybe alternative strategies, but it's one of the reasons it's finding fran- uh, investor partners. It is difficult. It's if yep. it was easy, everyone would do it. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. And a franchising, I've got, I've actually got a, a quite a soft spot for for franchising. Um and I I found especially when you're talking about, you know, so the ideal candidate for a franchise, typically an executive, you know, they've got some free cash. They definitely they're not really looking to be, you know, if they're going to buy a Jiffy Lube franchise, right? They're not necessarily going to be the guy in the pit, you know, undoing the you know the the oil filters and all that. Um but you know, they have some affinity for it. Um you can still, you can still bring stories to bear. You know, I remember one uh, a, a guy that I helped in the franchise industry. He was looking to franchise his Jiffy Lube kind of Jiffy Lube knockoff, and I'll never forget. He had this casual story. He's like, like, yeah, when I was little, I would go to these places, and my mom was always getting jerked around, and the places were dirty, and she always felt uncomfortable. And I, and I asked him, like, well, do you tell that story? He's like, no. Why? Why would I? It's like I, just because that only matters to everybody. I mean, matters to a like half of the population. P.S. But also to the to the executives that are going to be getting into the franchise because they they've probably got a daughter. I mean, odds are they've got a daughter. You know, odds are they've got a wife. In other words, they can relate to that story. Is that that's a, like a, a practical example of even in a month? What people think? Oh, there's no story in a Jiffy Lube. It's like I remember. My own personal story. I sat down. I was a young man. This is actually why I started helping the guy. 
I sat down next to this woman and she was, she was morbidly obese. In fact, she was so physically large. I wasn't paying attention. And when I sat down next to her, I sat down on her, if you know what I mean. I was horrified, not because, you know, it was like I was grossed out. I was horrified because of how she must have felt. And so I'm like in this moment of empathy and the guy comes out and he was just a total jerk. And it was, it was like such a, a juxtaposition for me. And I was pretty fresh out of the military, a far more aggressive than I should be in public normally. And I just launched into the guy and, you know, you don't ever do that. What, you know, this is all of that. Some choice four letter words. Uh, he must've thought I was like her husband or something like that. And then I sat down just steaming because I couldn't believe this, you know, this human being just went through that. And I'll never forget it. I mean, I'm about to tear up. She, she couldn't believe somebody like a total stranger did that for her. So, you know, we can't forget the humanity that we're serving, even in, I shouldn't even, I shouldn't say even, we shouldn't forget the humanity that we're serving. And, you know, that experience for her at that Jiffy Lube could have made her a customer for life, could have made her an advocate for life. Instead of sitting this woman outside in Arizona in the summer where she's already overweight, she's already going to be hot, you know, get, put, having some place where she can sit down that's comfortable, you know, that, that's going to make her feel less exposed. I mean, those are the things that really matter to people, not necessarily, uh, you know, just, hey, did you screw my, you know, oil filter on right? You know, at the doctor's office, you know, did they have little candies for my kid? You know, it's like it, it's the sum total of that, but relative to the people that we're serving, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And th those are great stories and situations to be sharing. And and I appreciate that. And uh, one of the things I'd love to do here at this point it, it is just kind of a transition into our little formula for the show. And we ask everyone the it. same questions before we go. And the first question is asking about a miss or two that may have come along the way and something you learned from it. Yeah, my first miss, unfortunately, is is the biggest, but I'll, I'll be quick. Um, I, my biggest miss was tied to my biggest success. So I built an e-learning company. Um, we had gotten it up to about a $420 million exit valuation, but I did it as an outsider. Right? So I didn't go to the traditional venture capital um, networks. And the deal wound up falling apart, right? They just couldn't, they couldn't come up with the $420 million bucks, to put it bluntly. And I'm like, well, then I'm not selling. And so it's really, you've, you have to seek, you have to go to where the expertise is. You have to go to where the connections are. Um, like a, uh, the big miss was related to me staying in Arizona, like having a technology company, I should have been in Silicon Valley. I mean, I needed to be in the mix of it, talking to the other entrepreneurs and talking to the other capital providers. And that's scary. You had, you know, I had two little kids, you know, it's a big deal moving your family. But at the end of the day, you know that was the difference between a, a total whiff and probably a multi-billion-dollar company. I mean, we had figured out uh, cross-platform tracking. Uh, we had the ability to track email to content to video, tie it all back together, and then we had a content generator which would pull from a repository and like feed stuff to you. It's this just massive undertaking that we're, you're just starting to see now in the mainstream. We had this stuff back in 2007. You know, so it, I don't say that lightly, like this was a multi-billion dollar miss. So it's definitely, it, it when you're talking about the difference between having something absolutely massive and a miss, it could literally be where you located geography-wise. Wow, what incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that. And how about uh, a make or two that you'd like to share? 
Well, yeah, the make is related to that. And so that company I got, uh, in fact, my, I didn't know it at the time. My, my dad was had terminal cancer. And so I went to him and said, Hey, you know, I need, I mean, I need this money. Uh, you know, I want to start this business. And he just wrote me this check for 25 grand, which I thought that's weird. Like I said, but I, later on, I found out why he did that. Um, so anyway, I worked that 25 grand all the way down to $5,000, finally hit on an idea that started to work and then grew the e-learning company out of that. And, but if you can imagine, I was, me personally, I was delivering the product, handling all the development. So I was coding HTML and PHP and all that. I was answering the phones, answering emails. It was insane. Um, and so I, I connected with a guy that got me hooked on business process. And that, especially if you're talking about a company wants to grow, I can say unequivocally, if you do not become a process freak, you can forget about it. And so what enabled us to go, we went from 25 grand in debt to 26 million in revenue, you know, basically 18 months. Now that a lot of that was due to the trends. I'm a really good trend spotter. And so the timing was right, but without the business processes, we would have been dead in the water. And so that one find enabled me, I was adding on 15 or 20 new hires every week at one point. And we could do that through those internal processes. Uh, and so that, that company, you know, obviously I could hire people. I had the freedom to think, you know, where's the business going? I didn't have to be in the day-to-day, which opened up a lot of the, the stuff that I talked about, a lot of the, those technology, uh, which I thought were kind of cool tools, but then tested out. We actually started making money based on them that freedom to to develop and the freedom to develop the business really came from being free from needing to be on top of people. Because so I could literally take out a process and say, okay, you know, did we meet our numbers? If we didn't, okay, what are you doing in your day-to-day? I would make them describe to me what they were doing. And I would just go point by point and you know, write down if they skipped something or missed it or changed it. I was like, okay, well, try this and tell me what happens. You know, so I could even manage easier, just all sorts of levers came out of that process thinking. Great. Well, what a huge, huge make for you there. And yeah, that's incredible, yeah. truly. And and really uh, talking about the process and what you're going through kind of go leads to the next question, which is a multiplier that you've used to grow. And I don't want to f- fill in process there, but it sure sounds like <laughs> it. So uh, what, what, what's you're a still my thunder. It's absolutely <laughs> process. You know, look, we, as entrepreneurs, we get so hooked on these great new shiny objects. And I think fortunately I, I studied all of the, you know, the so-called robber barons. I hate that title, um, because it really is a misnomer. Um, it's, it's a mistake to call them robber bears. So this is the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, um, and, you know what? They their businesses obviously were were simple because they didn't have a, a huge amount of technology. But think about it. You know, Rockefeller grew basically the biggest business on the planet. He didn't have an iPad and email and Slack and all this crap. It's like okay, so it's obvious that that stuff isn't necessary to build a huge company. So then we have to ask as entrepreneurs: if it's not necessary, then why are we using it? It's like maybe we should just use Google spreadsheets, huh? How about that? Um, so absolutely process is, is going to be the multiplier, not, not because it makes you rigid. And I like to, cause I'm a very creative person. What I like to tell people is if you look at like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, those, nobody would debate about those people being artistic and creative. 
and they had a process. They didn't just sit down and say, oh, I think today I'm going to, you know, draw a hand with six fingers. And it wasn't, they they didn't even sit down and say, I'm going to draw a hand with triangles. Their process was all the way down to proportion between, you know, joints in somebody's finger, how far the fingers were spaced. And so we would look at, at their work and say, it's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's absolutely artistic. And yet what sits behind it is a rigid, inflexible process. And so I like to tell that story because people that I talk to are like, oh, process, you know, I don't want to be constrained, man, especially my Silicon Valley, you know, brethren, they feel like, you know, they're just going to be put into this box. It's like, you know what, you wind up being shackled to the next shiny object when you're not constrained by process. When you have a process, you have literally unlimited freedom. Unlimited freedom is just expressed through a certain framework. And so maybe that'll help some people if, if they're thinking about or, or kind of rejecting the idea of, ah, you know, my business doesn't need process or it doesn't quite fit. Look, if you want to grow and you're in business, you need to have processes because what will happen is as you multiply, the stupid gets multiplied as well. And so the process helps us to get the stupid out of our business, right? Because we've all had this experience. We may not say it nowadays in the politically correct culture, but someone will do something on the team and in private, like, man, that was stupid. Why did they do that? It's like, well, because they weren't following a process. That's why. And so you you don't, you can't multiply the stupid and grow something that's going to last, that's going to have value, that someday you can exit for a lot of money, or something that's going to reliably throw off cash flow. The the stupid will drive the errors up enough so it sucks out the cash flow and it lowers your asset base. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And certainly uh, thinking about franchising, what we do, I love that you just gave a, a great glowing reason why process is so important. Uh, it's, and it's why it's franchises critical. work, frankly, because that's, right. that's generally what you do before you franchise. You that's process right. everything out. That's oh right. man, it's it, that's why I love it, frankly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And 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 I think you make a good point too about that while the process itself is a process, but it, it doesn't have to be rigid. I like how you talk about that, meaning that you still have to change and adjust and yeah, be flexible. Right. And the process is part of the process is changing the process, is what that's I've exactly kind of gathered right. from what you're yes. saying. Yes. Yeah. In fact, we you know, we have a process for changing the process. You know, because otherwise you get into willy nilly and it's like, oh, something small went wrong. Let's change everything. You know, entrepreneurs are famous for that. It's like, okay, hold on. Let's not do that. You know, let's have a process for figuring this out. What steps did you go through? Was that a critical step? Okay, what result did you get? You know, what think through what what the implications of it are. You know, yeah, okay, maybe it was a bad thing that happened now, but was that did that can that bad thing lead to something good? In other words, like let's say you lost a big client. It's like, well, was the client a jerk? Were they high cost? Right? It's like, did we need to fire them? And we, you know, we just happened on a process that drove that kind of person out. Which I'm mentioning that because we found that a lot because we were dealing with the public. We actually developed customer service processes that would weed out the worst customers. You know, these are people that constantly complain and are never satisfied. Because let's face it, you, you you can never satisfy everybody all the time. Yes. But there are some people who are just mad, right? I mean, and they buy stuff too. So it's absolutely about changing the way you do things. But here's really the, the, the magic. The magic is that you're tracking all of the steps that go into getting a result. And so you as the leader can focus on the result 
and say, okay, did we get it? Yes or no? No. Great. Process is go through the steps. Did you follow the steps? Yes or no? Right. So as as entrepreneurs, we are we only deal with a world of yes and no, black and white, which is great because as entrepreneurs and because we live in like future opportunity land, we like to find you know, we like to find the the pony and the pile of horse manure. <laughs> and it's like no, maybe it's just a pile of horse manure, right? But the process will help you to figure that out. <laughs> Oh, that's so great. That's so great. And well, and the final question we like to ask everyone is what does success mean to you? Oh man, success has really changed over time. You know, as a younger man, it was definitely related to status and uh, I'm kind of a watch freak. Uh, Greg Pavinsky on my team is an old friend of mine. You know, we're both kind of watch freaks. Uh, but it, so it meant like that material stuff. And I'll, I'll, I'll get super real on you as well. So I grew up, uh, my dad's black, my mom is Scottish. Uh, you know, so I never really fit into both worlds. So a lot of it too was, you know, just validation, you know, being able to rub people's noses in it. And I don't like, again, we live in this world where people don't like competition, but that definitely drove me. And so my competitive nature was, you know, less about what I could do, but more about the trash talking that I could, I could get away with, you know, making up for a very painful childhood. But as I processed that, you know, and obviously gotten older, you know, now it really is about legacy. It really is about looking around at problems and saying, finally, it's like, okay, we live in the greatest country on the face of the earth where somebody can come from Senegal for crying out loud. And 10 years later, be sitting on top of a $500 million company. Like there's no other, there's really no other country on the, on the planet that you can do that. Right. So when I look at that, I then start to think, well, what really huge problems are there, right? So if let's say it's climate change, who and it doesn't really matter which side of the fence you lay on. What I usually talk, like people who don't like climate change, what I usually ask them is, well, what's the downside, right? You know, is it a bad thing? Like, why are you really so dead set against this stuff? And then for the other side, it's like, okay, you know, it's not like we need to all live in mud huts. Like, let's, how about we figure it out? Like, how about we figure out how can we advance everyone and solve these problems at the same time. And so it's really more about that, you know, and some people might call it inspiration. I really think of it more in thinking about things realistically and having the ability to do it, right? So when Gandhi kicked the United Kingdom out of India, nobody thought it was possible. When he started, nobody would have thought, oh, sure, in you know less than 30 years, we're going to be completely independent and the, literally the, the reigning superpower on the planet is going to be sent packing. Well, if he can do it in India, then surely we can do it here in the United States. So it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of you know telling people, look, wake up. Yeah, we've got problems, but there's nowhere else on the planet that you're going to be able to do anything that we can do in the United States. Let's, yes, let's talk about and work on some of these problems, but less so that you know we're just talking about the problem and more so that, hey, let's identify what what the problems are, realize that we actually can do something about it. And let's actually, you know, set about doing something about it. That that's really what I see as as the platform. And so my success with Connexi is, yeah, it's still, you can you can kind of get some hints. They're still like, hey, Maceo, it still sounds like you're wanting to rub people's face, faces in your success. It's like, well, a little bit. I still haven't gotten away from it completely, but it is really in my mind, more of a showcase. It's like nobody would think here in 2021 that some crazy guy with like five people on his team in Arizona is going to remake healthcare. 
but we're going to stand in 2030 looking back and you're going to say, damn, they did it. And it's because of all of the, because we're in America, because we live on the, you know, in the greatest country on the face of the earth, because we've got the greatest people and mentality and culture in the sense of how do you remake such a monolithic broken system like healthcare? You live here. That's how you do it. And you, you take advantage of all the systems. And so then in 2030, I can look back and say, look, yeah, you can do it too, because, you know, here, go look at this interview as proof that if you've got the will, if you're willing to take the risk, if you're willing to step out of every comfort zone possible, then you can absolutely do massive earth-shaking things. That's the message of America, I think. Amazing. Well, I love it. I'm a huge patriot, so uh, I'm, I'm charged up. I'm inspired. So <laughs> Let's go do it. it. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, as, as we bring this to a close, is there anything you were hoping to share or say that maybe you haven't had a chance to get across yet? No, I, I think I got it. You know, I did a recruitment speech for America, you know, talked about my startup. I think, I think <laughs> we've covered it. Maceo, thank you so much again for being a guest and sharing all of the information and knowledge you did with us today. And let's go ahead and jump into today's three key takeaways. So takeaway number one is when he talked about what I considered those secrets to getting investors. So number one is that the investor invests in you. Do you have the right experience? And do they like you? I found that interesting. Do they even like you? Not only you got to have the experience, but they need to like you And in addition to your business. And number two, you need to be able to produce a high internal rate of return, as he said, a 30% plus IRR, plus repay the original investment in a very short time window, which could be maybe a two, three, four, five-year time window that you have to make this return on investment and that a, an investor would be looking for. Takeaway number two is to be around the people you need to be around for success. And Maceo shared with us a story about how he should have had his company based in Silicon Valley, especially when he was looking to exit. If he was there, he he said he probably would have been in a much better position to sell and exit at the right time. And takeaway number three is don't forget the humanity you are serving in your business. It's an easy thing to forget when sometimes dollars and cents start to get in the middle of things. And now it's time for today's win-win. So today's win-win is focused on becoming process-driven. Focus on the process, refining process, and making changes to it. And Maceo shared with us how this has been the catalyst for him in growing multiple companies and scaling very, very quickly. And he said having a process and creating processes, even as much as having a process to change the process, uh, this has been one of the big secrets for him scaling and growing his business, also the same for franchising as well. And so you can use this for franchising, finding investors, growing your business. So I thought this was a great win-win for the episode today. And that's the episode today, folks. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. And remember, if you or anyone you know might be ready to franchise your business or take your company to the next level, please connect with us at BigSkyFranchiseTeam.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back next week.